we are history. We're back on Zoom because, you know, there's only so much we can take of each other's actual company. So actually <laughs> sitting opposite you there, Angela, on the stage at the uh, Bedford in Ballam. Starting to feel a little bit queasy during that recording. Got home, COVID test positive. Yes, thanks for that, John. Um, luckily, I'd had COVID about three weeks before, so I was fine. To anyone in the front row, soz. Sorry, sorry <laughs> listeners. Uh, yeah, well, thanks for coming, everyone who came. It was a good, uh, it was a good. It time was really and, uh... fun. It was really nice, and uh, oh, we'll definitely do some more. Um, but for this week, though, John, we've got quite a remarkable story to tell, and one that people might not have heard of before. Yeah. Um, it's the story of a man called Ray Hill, who was the former fascist who turned informant on Britain's far-right extremists. So, John, you chose this one. This is a story I came to via the Guardian obituaries page. I was sitting up in bed one morning back in May and I was reading the paper. Sorry, John, May this year. You still get a newspaper delivered in 2022. Well, is that what you're telling me? Comes after the milkman and the tap-dancing chimney sweep, you know. <laughs> So oh, I'm sitting up in bed with my cup of tea, <laughs> reading the paper. Which your wife had brought you on a silver tray. <laughs> no, the maid, the maid. <laughs> oh, sorry. My... Anyway. <laughs> sorry. I'm reading this obituary and I thought, bloody hell, what a story. It's about this man, Ray Hill, who just died, aged 82. And uh, he was a man who had been a racist. Uh, he joined the anti-immigration campaigns of the 1960s. So we're all thinking definitely a baddie. Yeah. Racist, far-right politics, hates people with different colours skin. This is not a way to endear yourself to our We Are History <laughs> listeners, right? Um. <laughs> yes, I, I'm with you, Angela. But then one day, Ray had an epiphany and realised that this was all terrible. And instead of just stopping, he becomes an informant for the other side. He remains a key player uh, in the English far-right of the 1980s, but feeds anti-fascist campaigners key information about what the racists are planning. So he has this, while being an active racist, has this sort of moment, where a bit like that Mitchell and Webb sketch where they're both dressed as SS officers and David Mitchell suddenly sees it from an objective point of view and goes, hang on, are we the baddies? Exactly. exactly. Yeah, so, it's that um, moment. So I, I just tweeted a link to this Guardian obituary saying, well, this is a hell of, a, of an epiphany. And the tweet went really viral. It got half a million impressions. Wow. Just one of those moments when you realise that a story really connects with people. I think the redemption and mm. the, uh, you know, the desire to do good after doing so much bad uh, had a huge impact. So I copied in on Twitter the bloke who'd written this obituary and turned out he'd written a book with Ray Hill about this incredible life story. Oh, wow. So I thought, oh, well, I'll get hold of this book and maybe we could do an episode about it for this podcast. Turns out the book could not be found anywhere. It went out and print in the 80s. No copies on Amazon used books. Uh, Adobe, eBay, the library didn't have it. There was one copy somewhere that was like 200 quid in a rare books thing. Oof. I thought, okay, Andrew, I'm anti-fascist, but I've got my limits. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, 200 the quid, fascist 200 ones quid, were only a tenner. We'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, so in the end, I, the author sent me his personal copy. Oh, wow. So all my notes come from this, come from reading that. And I watched the Channel 4 documentary, The Other Face of Terror, which was made about it back in the 80s, which is still up on YouTube, actually. And the author, we, we haven't said the author's name, Andrew Bell. Andrew Bell is the author. The thank author. you, Andrew Bell. Um, um, yeah. yeah, so thank you. And so John John read the book and um, has uh, given me some extensive notes. Um, it's so fascinating. I will have to 
to read it, but yeah, maybe photocopy it before you give it back. <laughs> so we should give a little bit of background, John, because you know that's what I like to do. Yep, indeed. Um, yep. So where are we going back to? Back Genghis to Khan oh, was I quite right wing, wasn't he? <laughs> Vlad the Impaler. <laughs> well, let's. All right, all right. Let's just go back to. We'll stay. We'll stay in Britain. Uh, look back at far right politics after the war, which was after World War Two, because. 1945 has to be said, bit of a setback for fascism in Europe. Yep. Um, you know, as political philosophies go, uh, the perverse theories that they were responsible for the destruction of Europe, the murder of millions, not many people were going, oh, yeah, that seems like the way forward. Not in 1945. And yet, there's always some, aren't there? Even uh, at that point. I gonna, when I, when I was an active student, uh, lefty student, going to meetings and stuff, I had this dream. <laughs> this is what shadow I was. It was in my student house, and we were having a meeting in 1945 to sort out post-war Germany. In my dream, and I was at the what, meeting. What a group of students from Exeter! <laughs> well, I know Adenauer was speaking, <laughs> and Adenauer was speaking, and we all agreed that you know social democracy and uh, you know multi-party system and two chain and all that was being discussed. And then at this meeting, Hitler stands up and starts going, "What we the trouble is the Jews," and everyone in the meeting are going. Oh, you're not still banging on about that after everything that's happened. <laughs> so in my dream, it was just I've obviously been to too many lefty meetings where there were people still going on about Stalin or still, you know, banging yeah. the same drum after our history had proved them wrong. So, yeah, as dreams go, John, it's not quite Martin Luther King, but yeah. <laughs> no, no. But, we, yeah, um, so, but, so Oswald Mosley, you know. Yeah, we did we, a podcast on Oswald Mosley, didn't we? We've we got, did, we did. There's an yeah. episode you can listen back to. Because um, he didn't he didn't look at the ruins of Berlin and say, yes, maybe Lib Dems is the way to go, did he? Exactly. He carried on promoting racist politics and Holocaust denial after the war, stood for election a few more times in the 50s and 60s. Um, but the far right was never going to get very far in a country that could still remember Hitler and Mussolini, right? Absolutely, but, yeah. Yeah, in the sixties, the far right in the UK was splintered and divided. There was a, there were some sort of cranky groups, but there was no, there was no sort of electoral uh, momentum behind them. I mean, some of the groups, the League of Empire Loyalists, sounds sounds like a fun Just meeting. It. Yeah, that was that was founded by in nineteen fifty four by A K Chesterton. A K Chesterton. Yeah, not to be confused with his cousin G K Chesterton. Um, <laughs> and that was dedicated to keeping the British Empire and generally being racist and anti semitic and generally appalling. Was that what he said on their manifesto? And and there was an earlier incarnation of what was called the British National Party then, which yes. obviously formed in 1960 out of the White Defence League. Again, not a name that makes you think they would have bought copies of Ebony and Ivory by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder, is it? It's not. <laughs> no, I don't think they I were mean, spinning that at their Christmas party. <laughs> if there was a time machine invented, it would be great to go back to one of their earlier meetings, wouldn't it? And go, now I will sing for you our new marching anthem for the master race of white Ar- Aryans. <laughs> Ebony and, and Ivory. ivory. <laughs> just just to see the expressions on their faces before they beat me to a pulp. <laughs> just go, yeah, hang on a minute. <laughs> this, this isn't really what we had in mind. <laughs> oh my God, we laugh, but it's madness. There was also the... Uh, Racial Preservation Society, which is that lesser-known Kinks album. Um, again, Get, yes. I, don't, I don't think we would have got on with them very well, John. I know, a bit of a red flag if you start going out with someone. What are you doing? Do you want to go for a drink tonight? Oh, I can't tonight. I've got a meeting of the um, oh, Racial Preservation Society. <laughs> oh, oh, never okay, mind. Yeah. What, are you, what are you doing tomorrow? Oh, hang, on, hang on. What, <laughs> what, 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 what did you say you were meeting? doing again? <laughs> I mean, we laugh, but it's so... Because it's so vile. It's It's so terrible. 
then there was the great british movement uh john tyndall and their um policy for the protection of british blood racial oh, laws will be enacted forbidding marriage between britons and non-aryans medical measures will be taken to prevent procreation on the part of those who have hereditary defects either racial mental or physical a pure strong healthy british race will be regarded as the principal guarantee of britain's future i mean wow these these that is um pure sort of um mengele stuff isn't it yeah and and it's post war so, they're still saying this yeah so completely based in like there's no foundation for that what what does british blood mean anglo-saxon celtic picts what what are you talking about? There is no I mean, such thing as British blood. I don't know. It might just be me, Angela, but I, I, I don't mind sticking my neck out and saying some of these organisations sound a bit, it's a strong word, but racist. Well, yes, I think you might be right. I'm going to put it out there. I mean, it's just so yeah. stupid. Yeah, I mean, stupid I mean, it's evil, word, but, yeah, but, but, you yeah, know. This... So dumb, yeah. Oh, so dumb. Anyway. Uh, the Great yes. Britain movement uh, grabbed the headlines as uh, John Tyndall's deputy, Martin Webster, who will pop up later, he assaulted uh, Kenyan president, um, Jomo Kenyatta, as he left his hotel in London, knocking him to the ground. Jeez. Webster went to prison for that, uh, but it probably raised his profile on the far right. And he, he'd end up being a key figure in the National Front. So another thing I say, all these men who sort of purport to represent the master race and what they believe to be the pinnacle of... The human species, right? This is what's they, they're they're always such pathetic specimens themselves, right? If you're a if you're a tall, handsome, athletic man, you don't spend your time declaring that you're part of the master race because girls fancy you already. I mean, look at like Nick Griffin was a perfect example of that. You look at him and go, well, of of course you've fallen into this because you need to give yourself a reason that you're not at the top of the tree, that isn't that you're just a slimy, maggoty, horrible man. Yeah, Martin Webster was an ugly little fat man, face of a bloated toe. So all the Nazis lined up at Nuremberg trials, you, think, you don't look at photos of Goering and think, well, politics aside, I'd definitely do him. Like, it's... <laughs> you don't... They're all inadequate-looking men I'm, in I'm some way. Or, you know... I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that's not your reaction to watching this. Yeah. Movie, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, so 1967, these groups come together to form the National Front, which was to become the dominant far-right party in Britain for the next decade or so. Their magazine was called Spearhead, originally sold as the organ of national socialist opinion in Britain. PR guys, maybe turn down the national socialist Nazi thing. Don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think that right now. It's only, yeah. what, 20 years ago. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, their, their beginnings were slightly uh, hampered by the fact that uh, A.K. Chesterton, who was its first chairman, he went on holiday to South Africa every winter. Uh, <laughs> fellow racists, I promise you that as your leader, I will not rest for a moment. During the summer months. <laughs> oh, uh, and of course, the following year, 68, immigration becomes a hotter political topic with Enoch Powell's infamous Rivers of Blood speech. And Powell's a former Tory minister, sacked from the front bench by Conservative leader Ted Heath. But what Powell did was give respectability to overtly racist views. You know, he, he was a, a minister in... Yeah, he's a shadow minister because they were in opposition at the time. Oh, yeah, He'd been a minister for yeah. health. The Times called it an evil speech. And racial violence, actual violence, was a direct result of that speech. Absolutely. The, the, the figures went up. It suddenly made it sort of like um, acceptable to have this sort of um, man from the House of Commons, famous man from the House of Commons, uh, inciting racist 
hate when, when when a man from yeah when a man in a suit in the house of commons says that yeah you're yeah. right to feel those feelings that's all the uh, mandate you need exactly so about rather frighteningly thousands of dockers marched to westminster in support of him but racism was out of the box now and the conservative party had made it clear they didn't support Powell. Ted Heath sacked him from the front bench. But that was a huge boost for the nascent NF uh, and some Tory activists defected to the National Front as so well. So if you were a, to- a racist Tory, suddenly yeah. you a, you, you've got... Yeah, the NF is, is bolstered by those people. And so you've got this group of mostly undereducated white men who are drawn to the simplicity of this racism. Because that's the thing, isn't it? It's yeah. What it boils down to is disaffected young white men who need a reason for why, you know, their pay isn't higher or they're unemployed or whatever. And rather than, you know, if you've got people in government who don't want to accept it's their responsibility or, you know, that there's socioeconomic reasons for why that's the situation, it's much easier to tell those people, give them a simple reason, which is, those people with a different colour skin to you are doing the jobs for less money and that's why you haven't got a job. Yeah. And rather than going, well, why are those people happy to work for less money? Because that's all they can get. Why are these people... Why is that the situation? That, yeah. You know, it's easier to go, well, then it's their fault. Exactly. And, and this is basically what happened to Ray Hill. He was just an ordinary working class bloke from, uh, from Lancashire, born at the start of the Second World War. He spent three years in the army in the 50s and... Um, in 1965, he moved to Leicester and married the following year. He was just like a, an impoverished labourer with no qualifications. And his foreman told the workers, you know, in his sort of um, gang, that he could get a load of black men to do the work for less than he was paying them. And that planted an idea in Ray Hill's head about the imaginary danger posed by immigrants. And, and that's what, what's so upsetting, isn't it? That it's it's the Im- the low-paid immigrants that they are told is a problem, not the capitalist system that they're in. Exactly, the, yeah, the, the, the injustices that create Yeah, this. yeah. So Hill gets involved with a local group called the Anti-Immigration Society and he soon switches to the Racial Preservation Society, God help us. <sighs> so there he meets Colin Jordan of the British Movement and he's appointed organiser for the Leicester area and as, as well as Jordan's election for his campaign for the Birmingham Ladywood by-election in 1969. Jordan gets uh, 282 votes as the Liberals gain the seat from Harold Wilson's government. A little aside, Neville Chamberlain held that seat in 1924, beating Oswald Mosley. Ah, we did yeah. a podcast about him, you we keep saying. We yeah. did. So, so Colin Jordan, a major figure in far-right politics at the time, and he's a proper Nazi nutcase. Uh, he embraced total belief in Adolf Hitler as the true messiah who would live again. So like an actual Jesus figure so anti-jesus and he embraced the image of nazism when it, when most of the british far right even only wore their swastika underpants like in, in private you know it was he did it yeah he married um francoise dior the niece of the french fashion designer and international neo-nazi funder yeah you should watch the pathé coverage of their uh, 1963 wedding on youtube it's great to see all these 1960s anti-nazis chucking eggs and flour and stuff at the bride and groom as they come out of the registry office they're giving nazi salutes outside the registry office and being pelted with flour and eggs and this is the commentary because it's a posh British commentary it's really indignant that they're doing it in Coventry which was so bombed by the Nazis and it's how dare they do it in Coventry and the the, the local people are not very happy about that and pelt them with flour and eggs the the couple 
to celebrate their marriage, cut their flesh and let their blood mingle and drop onto a copy of Mein Kampf. I mean, Jesus did Christ. you and Matt do that when you got married, Angela? We did, but not with Mein Kampf. We did it with Adrian Mole. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the thing about that, I, I haven't actually watched that Pathé newsreel. I must watch it. But you imagine if that was on the BBC News today, the presenters would be told to be balanced about it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, they wouldn't be saying, how dare they do this in Coventry? How dare they do this? This is terrible. They'd be like, well, you know, Freedom they should. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they, yeah. You just wouldn't be able to have that level of opinion in the Coventry. Oh, God, it's so depressing. So Colin Jordan was convicted more than once, went to prison. Um, he organised a secret army of Nazi stormtroopers. That sounds fine. Uh, but he's... Nothing, nothing. Who, who hasn't? Who hasn't um, organised Nazi, secret Nazi stormtroopers? Absolutely. Uh, but his macho Fuhrer image never really survived his arrest in 1975. I love this. For stealing three pairs of women's red knickers from Tesco's in Leamington Spa, for which he was fined 50 quid by magistrates. There's always, there's always something. Now, look, hey, you want to wear red knickers? I don't care, right? If a man wants to buy red knickers, I don't care. But it's funny how with these guys who are so adamant they know right from wrong, adamant that, you know, great British whatever, they've always got some, there's always this little dark, little sexual perversion thing going on. Which, I love that you they know, were, yeah, I mean, I love that they were redneckers. If they were beige, oh, I think it would have been less memorable. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, oh, no. but yeah, redneckers, three pairs, Tesco's as well. It's like, oh, mate. Oh, <laughs> They're oh. probably not that classy knickers, if I'm honest. You could have gone, you know. Well, Tesco's knickers in the 70s. Yeah, I don't think they were, No. Maybe I wouldn't go near. Maybe... I wouldn't go near an open flame wearing them. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> oh God! So yeah. So, uh, but prior to this episode in the mid sixties, Jordan was, you know, he was like one of the most prominent neo Nazis in Britain, and Ray Hill worked very closely with him. Um, uh, even though the you know far right was very divided and factional world at that point, the National Front was was, was getting some traction with the racist. Yeah, well, that's the trouble, isn't it? With far right parties, they are always founded by tragic, deluded, narcissistic men who think they should be Fuhrer. And that's why you can't have just the British National Party and the National Front and the British movement all getting together and saying, well, we could just take turns at being Fuhrer. You know, I'll do Mondays and Wednesday, you take Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I'll tell you what, <laughs> if Hitler does come back to life, well, he can take the weekends. Sorted. They're, Let's go to the pub. <laughs> they're not collaborators in that way, are they? They're no, not no. They're not co-workers. They're not... It's, oh, no. Hitler sorted all that by having them all killed in 1934, you know. So it's yeah. like... Yeah, I think, I think Hitler is the one in charge, actually. Well, you have yeah. to be... You have to be a narcissist if, yeah. to genuinely believe that you are part of the master race as well. Yes, of course. Yeah. You know, and, to, and think to think that, that you... you are the perfect specimen of humankind... Most of us have self-doubt <laughs> at some level. Yeah. But anyway, Colin that. Jordan, prior to the yeah. theft of the Red Knickers, he was, um, you know, he was Ray Hill's way into the far-right politics. Now, Ray Hill was a good organiser. He was a good public speaker. And he, he rose quickly within the movement. You know, and whatever you think of the Nazis, I'm personally against them, Angela. Um, good to hear, John. It must have given Hill some sort of meaning to be a success in an organisation, feel like he was good at something. So... Mm. Um, but the other side of this coin, of course, was that violence is never far away from an organisation stirring up hatred and organising provocative marches or meetings. But Ray Hill, he knew how to handle himself. He'd been a boxer in the army. Um, like me, I did quite a bit of boxing in the army. As you know, <laughs> Sorry, that's the funniest thing you've said today. <laughs> Growing up in Maidenhead, Angela, boxing or crime, that's the only way out. Yeah, that or writing novels and musical theatre, eh, John? Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Boxing, crime, <laughs> or writing novels and musical theatre. 
but so Ray Hill got a got a conviction for assault. He assaulted a press photographer, so not even someone who was directly confronting them. Wow. Then at the end of '69, Hill was facing possible prison sentence for another assault in a confrontation with left wing students. Uh, but instead of turning up in court, he flees the country, settles in South Africa for a decade where he renews his interest in racist politics and apartheid South Africa. I suppose you would. Um, but we do we forget that there were political activists there who were furious that apartheid wasn't racist enough. <laughs> yeah, like, they were... Move to South Africa. Oh, this is a bit liberal. Yeah. Meanwhile, back in Britain, the National Front was getting lots of attention in the 70s, organising provocative marches. Martin Webster, who I mentioned. Actually, Martin Webster was secretly gay as well. You know, all this sort of... Um, there's always idea. some things... That there's, yeah. I, I just think that if you're being yeah. that... What's the word? Sort of prominently, yeah. you know, purist this is how a purist about pure blood and all macho. that. There's something yeah. you're... Super, there's something about you you're not happy with that you're trying to yeah. cover up, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, they were sort of, uh, you know, marching through diverse areas and generally making you feel like the Union Jack was not something you wanted to be associated with anymore. Um, yeah. Football fans uh, associated themselves with far-right politics. Chelsea, Millwall, West Ham, they all had skinhead sort of factions who chanted racist slogans. Made it quite unpleasant to go to some of those grounds back in the day, I remember. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there might have even been one or two racist policemen. Surely not, John. No, if you will believe that. I'm sure it's just a few bad apples who spoiled it for all the others. I'm sure, John. Um, And of course, when Idi Amin expels thousands of Ugandan Asians in 1972, they were given sanctuary in Britain, right? And sanctuary being the, you know, key word there. They held British passports. 27,000 of them emigrated to the UK, including, I believe, Priti Patel's parents. No, wasn't she one of the Ugandan... um, Oh, man. And the National Front, of course, exploited these images of Asians arriving at British airports, claiming these refugees were getting priority treatment for council housing or employment, when, of course, the opposite was actually true. Yeah. So the following year, Martin Webster gets 16% uh, of the vote in a by-election, which is the first time National Front had got into double figures, kept their deposit. And the next general election, uh, they uh, filled enough candidates to get a party political broadcast. So suddenly they're out there on our television with Union Jacks behind them, sort of stamping their fists on the desk. They did lose all their deposits. They only got an average of 3.3%. But still, they're present and in the consciousness, yeah. aren't they? So the left responded to this with the rise of the, of the National Front with the formation of the Anti-Nazi League. Look yes. at this, Angela. Oh, you've got your badge, John. Still got my Anti-Nazi League badge. There it is. I went on the march. I was there at the Rock Against Racism event. Brilliant. Uh, marches and music concerts organised. 100,000 people in Victoria Park. Obviously, hell of a lot more than the fascists ever attracted. Yeah, um, absolutely. But, 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 you know, but, yeah. But so we thought that the National Front was on the up and up throughout the 70s. Yeah. Uh, but it, the Anti-Nazi League, Rock Against Racism, all of that wasn't what killed off the National Front in the end, is it? They were no. sunk by the worst thing that could have happened to them, which was the leader of the Conservative Party agreeing with them yeah 1979 yeah in the run-up to the election thatcher gave an interview in which she said that people are really rather afraid that this country might be rather swamped by people with a different culture you know she could have said uh enriched or diversified but that one word swamped was such a clear dog whistle to the racist voters who've been supporting the national front to vote for that you know they all voted for maggie at the next election national front vote absolutely collapsed and um thatcher's conservatives were the beneficiaries of course, John, uh, to coin a catchphrase that we've fostered during this uh, 
podcast couldn't happen today, could it? Couldn't happen today. No, no, it couldn't happen no. today. I mean, the idea, the idea of the Conservative Party bolstering its numbers by attracting racists. I can't imagine it. <laughs> Irony alert. Uh, oh, my God. After the, we should say that we are recording this episode on the day after Liz Truss uh, resigned. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, it took me so long to do these notes, Angela, because I was just constantly watching the news, reading Twitter, uh, watching all the jokes and memes flying around. So, yeah, we're coming up to the 1979 election that's happened. Thatcher's in for a long time. Far right split into three factions. And it was into this mess that our Ray Hill appeared when he moved back to the UK that year from South Africa. And that's when he's going to begin his period of infiltration and spying on the British far right. Dun, dun, dun. I think that's a perfect point to take a little intermission. See you all after this word from our hopefully non-racist sponsors. It'd be terrible if <laughs> we, be terrible we can't if guarantee al- that. <laughs> it'd be terrible if there's some sort of algorithm, wouldn't it? Yeah. It. <laughs> it's very... Just heard the word racist and sort of went, oh, that was oh, oh, okay, fine. Well, National Front, right. here we go. Hello, so we are back and we are talking about the far right in the 1970s and 80s and specifically about one man, uh, Ray Hill, who became a mole within their ranks and helped alert the authorities to illegal gun running activities by the far right and a racist terrorist attack. Yes, so Ray Hill had worked as an insurance salesman in South Africa and had started to have doubts about his far right activism as he'd made a lot of Jewish friends out there. And... Uh, do you know what he thought? These people are not so different to you and me. Oh, that's what's Who'd so have thought it? maddening about it, isn't it? It's almost like these people are just human beings just, with the I same, know. you know, some, some of them some might be nice, some of them might not be, but they have the same worries and concerns as all of us. Yeah, but unfortunately, he was still involved in racist politics in South Africa. There was a there was a local neighbourhood near him that was deemed, uh, uh, you know, set aside as whites only. But the landlords there couldn't find any takers. So everyone was turning a blind eye as the properties were let to Indian families. So the South African National Front publicised that this law was being broken, protested to the police and the politicians, so the police were obliged to act to uphold the racist law. And one day, Ray Hill saw an Indian man sitting outside the front of his house with all his belongings piled up on the pavement, and the Indian man was just crying. And he was that moment, Hill thought, what am I doing? Uh, can you imagine how awful it was for that family, you know, just to be kicked out of this house, he hadn't done anything wrong. Hill wrote that he, wrote, he lay awake all night and realised that everything he'd thought was, that was right was wrong, that his activity had to end. Uh, although at that point, he'd never thought about switching, you know, switching sides in the way that he did. So he moved back to the UK in 1979. Um, um, moving back to Leicester, he was contacted by his old far-right colleagues and he returned as the National Front was busy splitting into factions. Yeah, and in this part of the world, there was a former young conservative called Tony Reed Herbert, who Hill perceived as a particular danger. He was a very respectable solicitor. Uh, he'd been a, a you know, as I say, a, a conservative activist. He launched the British Dem- Democratic Party, and Ray Hill decided that one way to undermine the birth of this new fascist party would be just to ring up Searchlight and tell them what they were planning and who all the personnel were. So Searchlight, that was the anti-fascist magazine run by Jerry Gable. And, and it, 
it exposed the actions of the far right in the UK and obviously was hated, therefore, by National Front and similar organisations. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Searchlight went on for years and years. Uh, I used to know Jerry, well, I met him a couple of times back in the 80s when I was working for Alf Dubs, but they did a sterling job back then of exposing uh, fascists and uh, all the activities of the far right. Hill rang up their Birmingham office and it was clear he knew what he was talking about. He gave them lists of names and plans for this new party and the activist from uh, Searchlight persuaded him to meet you know, Hill to meet him for a drink. So Hill went along and admits, you know, he says he admits in the book he didn't really want to get further involved and then sort of realised he had no choice. That's it, because he, he had two decisions there, didn't he? Either just to walk away completely yeah. or to stay within this sort of system that he didn't really want to have anything to do with anymore but in, for the greater good in the long term. Yeah. So Reed Herbert has this secret plan to acquire guns to arm a private army of brown shirts for what he called the coming race war. Plus, he had crazy plans to acquire transmitters to take over the airwaves, replacing TV, radio broadcasts with racist propaganda in place of BB, regular BBC programs. I mean, you have to worry about the sanity of these people, don't you? This man's a solicitor in Leicester and he thinks he can knock out national broadcasters and lead an army of fascist sympathisers onto the streets. I just think if he was my solicitor, I'd be thinking, do you know what? We'll get, we'll get someone else to sort out grandma's probate. There's no, like, <laughs> I don't think this guy's all there. No, quite. So in the, from the inside, he'll have to run the difficult double act of sort of wanting to undermine this bunch of, you know, v uh, violent racist thugs, but also having to pass himself off as one of them. And he talks about being disgusted by the witnessing the fascists boasting about the violence they'd engaged in. Uh, uh, and then one evening he's in the car with some racists and they suddenly pull up and they assault an elderly Asian man. They just get out and beat this poor man with a truncheon. And Hill is really upset. He wants to go to the police there and then and give evidence in court against them. He goes, I don't care if I blow my cover. But Jerry Gable from Searchlight goes, no, he'll get their name to the police. Don't worry. I'll I'll get their name. We say that the police sort of uh, had a, someone watching it, whatever. He'll had to stay undercover because there were bigger fish to fry. I mean, that must have been so tough, isn't it? Yeah. When you've had your revelation, you don't want part of this and you witness something like that and you yeah. just have to stay there. You can't imagine what that must be like. And also, that's just, you know, any political arguments that these parties might have felt they had, you know, any socioeconomic arguments, arguments for what they're saying, obviously not based on any truth, but any of those arguments they have surely are, are then yeah. just, they evaporate when you are just attacking an elderly Asian... Asian man on the street who has done nothing, said nothing, not political, just because that's just, that's where it all falls apart, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, um, so Searchlight got uh, World in Action, the TV programme involved in this. And so uh, Hill had to sort of back off to avoid incriminating himself. Mm. Uh, and in the book, he describes watching the edition of World in Action about this gun running plot from Reed Herbert. And uh, one of the activists in the gun running plot, he watched it with him. And oh, as wow. he was exposed on national television, he ends up banging his head against the wall saying, my mum always said I would come to no good. I mean, his mum had a point, didn't she? But how hard must that have been like, for, for him to sit there watching it with one of the activists as they're being exposed? Yeah. And what do you do with your face in that moment? Like, he must yeah, have been one hell of an actor. actor. Yeah, there was going to be a bigger expose and another documentary to come. A sort of story sort of reaches a climax in 81. And um, 81, a bit more context, I suppose. Volatile time in race relations in this country. And I remember this. I mean, I was only, what was I, five in 1981, five turning six. But I remember the Brixton 
right? So I remember that tension. I remember yeah. my parents talking about it. Um, so what in January 1981, there'd been the New Cross fire where 13 teenagers black teenagers were killed in a probable arson attack on a party in southeast london yeah do do watch uprising by steve mcqueen on iplayer it's a very very powerful watch it's quite long it's three hours but it's very uh incredibly done the uh, local community were understandably very angry about the inadequate police response to the fire and the lack of media interest you know at the loss of black teenage lives imagine it being 13 you know posh girls from the, oh the we'd all school. it'd be yeah. common knowledge we'd all know about yeah. it it would have yeah. been the yeah. So so March, the local community organised a huge march uh, from New Cross, across uh, Blackfriars Bridge to Fleet Street and up to Hyde Park. Um, and yeah. meanwhile, a few miles away in Brixton, um, yeah. the police were busy abusing their stop and search powers. And in some sort of show of strength, the police launched. And this is where <laughs> just can't quite believe it, can you? They, the, they called the operation Operation Swamp, which seems to be named after Thatcher's racist comments just a couple of years earlier yeah. when yeah. she talked about being swamped with, you know, that's no coincidence yeah. that, is it? No, it's not. No, no. Operation Swamp was basically get every police officer we have on the streets of Brixton, apprehend anybody black you see on the street, harass and insult them, and in some cases assault them. One victim in that documentary, the Steve McQueen thing, says that the police would punch you first and then start asking questions afterwards. And of course, unsurprisingly, the situation explodes because... That's sheer injustice. And uh, in April 81, that's when there were the riots in Brixton, which I, rem I remember everyone talking about and it being on the news. It shot the whole nation yeah, was talking yeah. about it. But it's not, you know, as if these people just rose up from nowhere and rather than it being a, a group of people who just had enough. Yeah, I see. I, I live a mile from there, and it was incredible watching this documentary of these streets that I know and go and shop in. You know, I told my kids to watch this documentary because I I sort of wanted them to understand that the kids they went to school with, because uh, it was you know a very mixed school, they uh, that this is what their parents had grown up in. That was the eighties Britain, Brixton. That's what their their, their friends' parents had um, had lived through. On the documentary, someone recalls a local vicar in the middle of the riots shouting at the police, "This is all your fault." Yeah. Um, so this is the context in which London awaited the 1981 Notting Hill Carnival. And what Ray Hill knew was that there was a perverted plot on the far right to precipitate a race war in the UK by setting off a bomb at the Notting Hill Carnival, the UK's biggest street carnival and, of course, a massive Afro-Caribbean festival uh, yeah. in the heart of uh, Britain's black community. And there'd been right wing bombings in Bologna and Munich the year before. Yeah. Uh, 82 people killed in Italy, dozen in Bavaria. And now the plot was to do the same in the UK. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. And there was even a plan to have snipers on the roof in West London to shoot people after the bomb had gone off so that the locals would think they're being shot by the police and the, and the violence would escalate from there. Ray Hill learned that the bomb, because the, the, the European fascists were all talking to each other. All, that's very much what comes out of this book and the documentary, that the, the Italian, the French, the Spanish fascists are all in uh, uh, constant contact. He learned that the bomb was going to be the same as the one in Bologna, the, uh, which killed 82 people. Incredible. We don't really remember that. And the method would be the same as Munich. And this is a particularly grisly detail. They would make the man who planted the bomb, the fascist who planted the bomb, an unwitting sacrificial lamb. Uh, they'd lie to him about the time at which the detonator was going to go off so that he himself was blown to death at the time of planting the bomb, uh, which is what happened in Munich. So they told him it was uh, the detonator was set for 3.30. It was actually set for 3 p.m. when he was supposed to plant it. So the poor little foot soldier, they got to plant the bomb 
unwittingly gave his life as part of their plan. Jesus. And, and so the detonators for this particular Notting Hill plan were hidden at the activist's house. Yeah. Um, now, he was visited by Special Branch, which is the elite police unit that specialises in subversive activity and that sort of thing. So he thinks, well, I'm done for now. The police have come. They're going to find the detonators. But, John, the detonators, you see, were hidden under the bed. And the police didn't look there, which is understandable because, you know, who looks under the bed when they're looking for something? That's a pretty good hiding place, isn't it? Isn't it? You know, no, under no the bed. No one's going to think to look there. Never think to look there. So Ray Hill has to allow the plotters to incriminate themselves as much as possible. They need to be caught red-handed, but not so late in the day that there's a risk of the bomb actually going off. Um, perhaps, you know, Ray Hill and Jerry Gable didn't trust the police because they ended up not going to the police, but going to the papers. And the whole terrible plot was exposed on the front page of the Daily Mirror. And you can understand why they didn't trust the police, <laughs> considering the whole Operation Swamp business. Yeah. Well, you also, know. during that, con and, and that, in that um, documentary, Uprising, which is on iPlayer, as I say, the police would get people into the back of uh, their vans, black people, and show them their national front badges on the inside of their lapel. So that's what we were dealing with. Um, so, um, so that's why, you know, so maybe that's why they went to the Daily Mirror. But the bombers didn't know how the papers had got all this information. They blamed Searchlight, not Hill, of course. And Hill even volunteered to stake out the Birmingham offices of Searchlight uh, as they plotted their revenge. Wow. So Hill carries on as a mole inside the far right. In fact, he becomes the deputy leader of the British movement and then just virtually destroyed that party by challenging for the leadership and bankrupting the party with all the legal challenges that followed. So yeah. he was really, you know, d d destroying it from within. And he stands for election for the BNP at Leicester East. Yeah, 1983. Uh, gets a paltry 1% of the vote. It's a bit poor, John. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, you know, to yeah. be fair, he's an undercover secret double agent, so that does give him an excuse. I think his heart wasn't in it, Angela. Yeah, gives him more <laughs> of an excuse than you had at Maidenhead. Uh, <laughs> 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 and then in, that's, that's below the belt, Angela. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist that. <laughs> <laughs> but so, but then in 1984, he finally blows his own cover by going on Channel Four documentary, "The Other Face of Terror," and exposing the whole lot of them. Oh, can you imagine? Can you imagine how all those Nazis felt sitting at home, watching the program, realizing that one of the men at the heart of all their activities for so long had been working on the other side for years? We'd yeah. love to have seen their faces. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a fascinating documentary. Actually, it's a bit. <laughs> <laughs> where Hill talks about going to a party, he says we we uh, yeah we we met various other European uh, fascists at a party organised to celebrate Hitler's birthday. That's the most normal thing. <laughs> that would make me. I don't know about you, Angela. That would make me think twice. Oh look, we've been invited to a party. Oh, what's the occasion? Uh, says celebrate Hitler's birthday. Oh, I don't know, that's a bit. I don't know. What do you think? Are they providing food? <laughs> so we Hitler. That, should we that go? Hitler? Yeah. Is this the Hitler? Yeah, I'm not sure we should go to that, Angela. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> anyway, but anyway, the documentary, it exposed the far right uh, as the terrorists, which we all sort of knew anyway, but it did enormous damage to the right uh, in the UK, along with this, the book that accompanied which is our main source for this podcast. And of course, Ray Hill at this point is in a lot of danger, right? Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't be able to walk down the street as Ray Hill in certain, you know, he had to go into hiding. Absolutely. Move, move away from Leicester. Um, yeah. And he started working for Searchlight. Yeah, that's right. He became a lecturer and a researcher for the uh, for the anti-fascist organisation. Apparently, he was a very witty and entertaining public speaker and he'd talk to students and he'd troll the country. 
He'd never criticised young working class people who'd been tempted into the world of uh, fascist politics uh, just because they felt disenfranchised and alienated because he knew how easily that could happen. And, and, and he made it his mission to stop it happening to others. Absolutely. And that's the thing, is that that's where so many people get it wrong, I think, in attacking yeah. those people those people at the bottom yeah. when they've been so manipulated for, yeah. you know, people who are trying to grab power. Yeah. And not only did Ray Hill expose all those illegal activities, he also sowed so much suspicion and mistrust by having been a successful mole himself that that division on the far right continued for years because they didn't trust each other, right? The various yeah. factions wouldn't unite because none of them could be sure that one of them wasn't being infiltrated by another sleeper agent, yeah. by another yeah. Ray Hill. Yeah, and the effect of that, of course, is it's impossible to measure. But the, the fact that there wasn't a unified far-right party for a decade or so in Britain means that all sorts of things probably didn't happen and all because of one you know, brave mole undermining them from the inside. Absolutely. And, and you know, the brave, that is brave. He could have just walked away, Ray yeah, Hill. Yeah, yeah. And so, famous, yeah. yeah, and it wasn't like he was a police officer being paid to do, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a, a courageous move. And he's a, to stay. Yeah, kids, a wife and kids, you know, and he had to yeah. move house. And it's, and it's um, yeah. yeah. And tell, there's, a, there's a similar story, I don't know if you've seen it, dramatised uh, recently, starring Stephen Graham. It's called The Walk-In. I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't seen it yet. I've seen the adverts for it. And, I, and Stephen yeah. Graham's incredible. Oh, he's a great actor, isn't he? Yeah. Such a good actor. Um, uh, but that was set more recently. It's a similar story, actually, set during the Brexit campaign about a Latter-day Mole uh, by the name of Matthew Collins. And he was a uh, former activist in the nas in National Action, or a particularly violent, nasty... They're the one that are basically outlawed, aren't they? But there was a guy recently who was... Um, well, a, of... there was a plot to murder MP Rosie Cooper. And uh, right. Matthew Collins had to go and hide in Australia for 10 years. He's now oh, head of wow. intelligence uh, at Hope Not Heat who you should follow, guys, if you're on social media, which we, we sort of presume you are. So if you're one of our listeners who's also an activist in a neo-Nazi paramilitary organisation, get in touch with Searchlight or hope not hate. It's not too late. Do some good with your life. Turn it around. Change those terrible choices. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's good advice there, Angela, to all our, any of our neo-Nazi listeners. Any of our fascist listeners, of which I'm sure there are many. There are thousands out there. They love, <laughs> they love our stuff. Oh, yeah, they do. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's it for this week's episode. Rest in peace, Ray Hill. Uh, read the book by Hill and Andrew Bell. Thank you for the loan of the copy again. I mean, you uh, say read the book. Good luck no. finding one. If you've got a spare 200 quid, read the book. <laughs> From a rare books dealer in Australia. Or maybe Andrew Bell will lend it to everybody in the country. Or you can uh, you can watch a documentary of the same name, The Other Face of Terror, made yeah. in 1983 for Channel 4. It's on YouTube, is it, John? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, you know, maybe some publisher or producer will be listening to this and decide it's time to tell the story again. Yeah. In fact, after my tweet about it, which this got like half a million impressions i thought maybe i should everyone was going to me john you should write a screenplay about that you love politics and then i thought yeah yeah for a day or two i was going yeah i wonder if i could like get the rights to this book and write and then i thought i want to spend six months of my life thinking about fascists and racist violence i'm a yeah, comedy writer yeah this is that part of the musical that's much more fun <laughs> yeah yeah you'd have to really embed in that mindset yeah. to yeah. know no don't do no, that nice funny characters yeah absolutely um so we'll, we'll, we'll be back next week with another light-hearted subject, John. God help us. <laughs> That's it for this week. Uh, uh, thank you, Ray Hill, for all your work. And thank you, um, yes. uh, everyone, for listening. Um, yeah, Don't forget to a... give us a review on iTunes. If you can, five stars on iTunes really helps us um, get up the old podcast charts, uh, which means that we can make more We Are Histories. 
Um, and then uh, we'll be back next week. And Angela, you'll be leading next week, I think. Am I right? I will, yes. Yeah, now you've got um, your mock the weeks out of the way. You've got a bit yeah, more time. Yeah, I've got, I'm very busy, John. But yes, yes, we'll have more time. And uh, we do, I mean, it, I know we've had a big long gap and I know we've said it before, but we do, this is our little passion project. We don't make money from this. So give us some love, you bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much on that bombshell. <laughs> that bombshell, we'll, we'll sign off. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.